welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Coming to you live from the road with my new travel mic. Lots to discuss in the intro. First, the Attorney General has referred matter of Nagus to himself. This is the persecutor bar case decided by Attorney General Barr and discussed on episode 28 of the podcast following the Supreme Court's remand and multiple BIA decisions. So we're on like the 12th iteration of Nagus. Rock on. Also, EOIR announced that Andrea Sainz, formerly an attorney advisor and then in many prestigious positions advocating for non-citizens, has been appointed to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Congratulations, appellate immigration judge, Science. I do not know Judge Science, but those who do seem thrilled. Good luck to you, appellate Judge Science. May your interpretation of the INA be the correct one. Three cases this week, kind of all over the place. And look out for a long overdue special episode, hopefully dropping later this week. First up is Liang v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on October 12, 2021. This case is about asylum and related relief, and it starts off with the gloves off, judiciously, of course. Quote, divide and conquer is a good military strategy, but a bad judicial one. End quote. Indeed. Mr. Liang is a Christian from China. He turned to Christianity, in fact, after Chinese officials forced his girlfriend to have an abortion in 1997. Police busted an underground house church meeting he was in in 2000 and brought him to a police station. At the station, they bent him over and cuffed his hands behind his back. Then they beat him. They held him by his hair and struck him in the face and the ears. They pounded his back and his legs, and they pummeled him so hard for 20 minutes that he suffers hearing loss to this day. After that, the police locked him in a cold cell, gave him little to eat, and kept him there for 15 days. Before letting Mr. Liang go, the police warned him, quote, If we catch you in church again, we will throw you back in jail. End quote. But Mr. Liang did not stop going to church. 
and a decade later he came to the United States. In removal proceedings, DHS acknowledged that the police thing constituted persecution, but challenged Mr. Liang's credibility. The immigration judge, however, denied relief by finding Mr. Liang credible and deciding that, in fact, the police and church thing did not rise to the level of past persecution. The BIA affirmed, deeming the incident insufficiently, quote, severe, end quote. The Third Circuit remanded. Although the BIA said it analyzed all the harms related to the church incident cumulatively, quote, the opinion shows that the board did not do what it said it did, end quote. Rather, the BIA clearly analyzed the police officer's threat separately and held that it did not rise to the level of past persecution, and then analyzed the beating separately and held that it too didn't rise to the level of past persecution. This the BIA cannot do, especially as, quote, a threat can be made concrete by the violent context in which it occurred, end quote. So while the Third Circuit didn't say what the result in the case should be, it sent it back for a proper, cumulative analysis. Short case with a remand. Congratulations, David Yan, for petitioner. Let's get nerdy. Judge Jordan, joined by Judge Ambrose, i.e. two of the three judges, concurred with the decision and would hold that after the Supreme Court's Guerrero-Lasprilla decision, whether harm rises to the level of past persecution is a mixed question of law and fact. That's important because purely factual findings are reviewed by the circuit deferentially, while questions of law are reviewed de novo. Petitioners' counsel almost always want to be in de novo land. When presented with such an issue, these judges would have a panel first decide which part of, say, a past persecution finding is an issue of fact and which is an issue of law, and then apply the appropriate standard of review. And actually, the judges believe this is already the law in the Third Circuit. They just want panels to be clear going forward. Right on. Also of note, although the Third Circuit remanded, it did note that the IJ had no duty to consider the 1997 abortion incident and Mr. Liang's subsequent argument with police about that because it was too, quote, tenuously related, end quote, to the true basis for Mr. Liang's asylum claim, the religious stuff. Keep in mind, though, that even for asylum and withholding, in addition to, of course, cat protection, quote, the agency errs when it considers related mistreatment in isolation, end quote. And that is Lang, the Attorney General of the U.S. Next is Matter of Kagumbas, published by the BIA. This is a decision about bona fide marriages that Ira Kurzban is not happy about. The BIA held that, quote, an immigration judge has the authority to inquire into the bona fides of a marriage when considering an application for adjustment of status under INA Section 245A, end quote. Here's why. So as many of you, of course, know, and as I often discuss on the podcast, to adjust to LPR status under INA Section 245A based on a marriage to a U.S. citizen, the U.S. citizen spouse must file and have approved an I-130 petition with USCIS. Only USCIS can adjudicate the petition, even if the beneficiary non-citizen is in removal proceedings before an IJ. It's never made sense to me. And all an approved I-130 petition says is, the petitioner is a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident, and he or she is in a valid marriage with the non-citizen. Once the I-130 is approved, 
the non-citizen beneficiary then must prove that they warrant adjustment of status under INA Section 245A, including as a matter of discretion. Mr. Kagumbas is from Kenya and entered the United States as a student. He remained in the U.S. without authorization thereafter, but he married a U.S. citizen, and she filed an I-130 petition with USCIS for his benefit. It appears that they did not file the I-130 and the I-45 concurrently, as they could have. USCIS approved the I-130, and so, because Mr. Kagumbas entered the U.S. lawfully, he was prima facie eligible to adjust to LPR status. He filed the adjustment application, but before USCIS adjudicated it, DHS served Mr. Kagumbas with a notice to appear, therefore divesting USCIS of jurisdiction over the adjustment app and placing jurisdiction with the IJ. Mean move, guys. But then again, Mr. Kagumbas has no criminal record, and so it would appear that he had a fairly straightforward path to adjusting before the immigration judge based on the approved I-130 petition. And actually, DHS agreed to terminate proceedings so USCIS could adjudicate the I-485. But Mr. Kungumbas declined the offer, thinking, perhaps not incorrectly, that he could get adjusted quicker in immigration court. Hindsight is 2020. Mr. Kungumbas, his wife, and his mother-in-law testified at the individual hearing. Mr. Kungumbas and the mother-in-law testified consistently, but the wife, subject to cross-examination, did not. She was decent, but she got the joint apartment address slightly wrong testified that she didn't live with Mr. Kagumbas during the entire marriage, in contrast to apparently Mr. Kagumbas' testimony, and stated that she didn't know his mother's name. The immigration judge denied adjustment of status by holding that Mr. Kagumbas entered into a fraudulent marriage based on his wife's testimony, and therefore that notwithstanding the approved I-130 petition, the marriage was not bona fide. That means, according to the immigration judge, that Mr. Gungumbas was not statutorily eligible to adjust. The BIA affirmed. Although it recognized that the regulations don't allow immigration judges to grant or revoke an I-130 petition, it also held that, quote, the immigration judge's assessment of whether the respondent has met his burden of proof does not become merely a ministerial act simply because there is an approved I-130 petition, end quote. And really, that's about what I see in analysis. The BIA believes it logical that IJs should be able to decide the bona fides of a marriage where, as with all or nearly all adjustment of status applications before IJs, the IJ has exclusive jurisdiction to decide a case. The holding apparently aligns with decisions out of the Fifth and the Ninth Circuits and does not contradict any circuit decisions, according to the BIA. True, quote, this does not mean that the approved I-130 petition is irrelevant, end quote, it's of course very relevant and absolutely necessary for a non-citizen to adjust to LPR status, but once the I-130 is approved, it is merely, quote, some evidence, end quote, for the non-citizen to rely upon to establish the validity of his or her marriage. All of that being said, the BIA sent the case back, thereby preventing a petition for review, because it could not adequately review the transcript to review whether the immigration judge's bona fide finding was supported by substantial evidence. This is because there are too many places in the transcript where the testimony is listed as, quote, indiscernible, end quote. Therefore, quote, given the sheer number of indiscernible statements in the transcript, end quote, the BIA remanded either for a new hearing or for the IJ to review the BIA's transcript and make clear which portions of the transcript the IJ relied upon, therefore permitting BIA review. Okay. Here's an interesting quote. 
As compared to USCIS, quote, an immigration judge must have the same authority, no less and no more, by virtue of the exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate an adjustment of status application, end quote. This quote and the logic of this decision may be used by practitioners to expand the realm of issues that IJs are permitted to decide. While IJs still can't decide I-130 petitions, there may be other petitions or other applications that are so connected to adjustment of status adjudication or other issues exclusively before the court that, following this decision, IJs may be convinced that they can decide. We're the shot. We're helpful. And that is a matter of Kungumbas. Finally, we have Sherry et al. v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on October 15th, 2021. This case is about drug trafficking and Niz Chavez. And there are actually two non-citizen petitioners here, but importantly, both were convicted for having violated Connecticut General Statute Section 21A-277A, and DHS placed both in removal proceedings by serving and filing an NTA that lacked the date, time, and location of the petitioner's first removal hearing. The Connecticut statute criminalizes the sale or possession with intent to sell of narcotics. While both non-citizen cases arise in slightly different contexts, both decisions turned on whether the statute is a drug trafficking aggravated felony, and in one, whether it also qualifies as the separate removability provision for having violated a law relating to a controlled substance. That inquiry, of course, involves the categorical approach, and actually on two separate elements. See, in the 2008 decision United States v. Savage, the Second Circuit held that this Connecticut conviction does not match the definition of a controlled substance offense for the analogous Armed Career Criminal Act purposes, because the statute criminalizes, quote, a mere offer to sell, absent possession, end quote, and can include a fraudulent offer to sell, i.e., no drugs need to be involved, and so, the theory goes, the conviction can't be one that relates to a controlled substance offense for ACCA or immigration purposes. But five years later, in State v. Webster, the Connecticut Supreme Court held that, quote, an offer requires actual, constructive, or attempted transfer and the presentation of a controlled substance for acceptance or rejection, end quote, i.e., drugs must be involved. In this decision, the Second Circuit held that Webster trumps Savage, which makes sense, because for categorical approach purposes, circuit courts must defer to state Supreme Court decisions defining the elements of state criminal offenses. Alas, my oldest of nemesises, the Connecticut Supreme Court. This also makes the crime materially identical to a similar New York statute that the Second Circuit has previously held is a categorical drug trafficking aggravated felony, and so the conviction, which now always involves possession of drugs for sale, categorically involves trafficking. But that still leaves the classic categorical analysis regarding the identity of the drugs involved. Connecticut, like almost all states, criminalizes possession and trafficking of more substances than those listed in the federal CSA, and so, unless the Connecticut law is divisible as to the drug possessed or trafficked, the conviction can't be a controlled substance offense or a drug trafficking aggravated felony. Unfortunately for Messrs. Sherry and Graham, the Second Circuit held that the statute is divisible vis-a-vis the substance at issue because the drug trafficked is an element of the offense that the prosecution must establish to get a conviction. 
and that is because mainly the statute, quote, lists hallucinogenic substances and narcotic substances as discrete alternatives for a violation, end quote. That means, according to the Second Circuit, that the statute is divisible as between hallucinogens and narcotics. And it appears that only the hallucinogens include substances that are not listed in the CSA. By the way, as an aside, this makes the Connecticut statute different than a similar New York statute which, it would appear, is not divisible, and therefore is not a controlled substance or drug trafficking removability offense. Worth remembering. Anyway, as the Connecticut statute is divisible as between these two categories, the Second Circuit reviewed the conviction records under the modified categorical approach and concluded that the petitioners were convicted under the narcotic section. That makes the convictions both controlled substance and aggravated felony drug trafficking removability convictions. Turning then to the deficient NTAs. The Second Circuit affirmed its pre Chavez precedent, holding that the deficiency is not jurisdictional. Indeed, every circuit has. But as I read the decision, the Second Circuit said nothing about whether deficient NTAs provide grounds to argue that a mandatory claims processing rule has been violated. Nor did the Second Circuit appear to say anything that would undermine the Fifth Circuit's decision two weeks ago in Rodriguez, that in absentia orders premised on deficient NTAs must be reopened. Strange world indeed, where proceedings need not necessarily be terminated when based on deficient NTAs, but must be reopened when non-citizens do not appear for their hearing and are ordered removed in absentia. But here we are. Mr. Sherry and Mr. Graham are therefore removable and ineligible for relief. Two more things that I don't love. In a blow to an argument that I've often made on the podcast, the Second Circuit held the statute divisible despite recognizing that sale of hallucinogens carried the same punishment as sale of narcotics. The Second Circuit held that while statutes that carry different penalties are almost always divisible, it was not aware of any, quote, authority requiring the converse, end quote. That is, any decision holding that a statute with identical punishments is not divisible. But perhaps the court could not find such a decision simply because the decision has not been issued yet. Keep arguing. And finally, in a move that I've never seen before, the full panel issued a 13-page appendix in which the panel urged Congress to change the definition of an aggravated felony. The panel would like Congress to change the definition to, quote, any offense for which the defendant was sentenced to serve more than one year in prison, end quote. Which sure make the podcast less interesting. I beg for your reconsideration, respected panel. And that is Sherry et al. v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. 
And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.